Hi, you're listening to Conversations with A and J. I'm Alicia. I'm a licensed esthetician who suffered for years from severe periods and finally learned that it was due to a large fibroid. Now, as I'm recovering, I am refocusing on my coaching business where I help women achieve the life of their dreams. And I'm Jess. I'm a 38-year-old endometriosis and thyroid disease warrior, former osteomate, and a dedicated theater and dance educator in the Chicagoland area. And we are your hosts. This week, we are bringing you episode eight, part two of our two-part series, Diet Culture Vultures, a conversation about disordered eating, its lifelong effects, and how diet culture is masking itself as health. And guess who's back with us, but our good friend, Kristen Saucier. And she's got so much more to talk to us. We've decided she's going to be here probably like once a quarter with us. So get excited. (laughs) Get plethora of information from her. (laughs) But before we dive in, just a couple of disclaimers, as always, before we start this week's episode. We do not edit out our bad words, so listener discretion is advised. Also, information shared on this podcast should not be viewed as medical advice. Any information shared is for general knowledge only. Anyone experiencing medical or mental health crisis should speak with a medical provider directly. Listening to this podcast does not establish a client-patient relationship. So let's get into part two of Diet Culture Vultures. I feel like there needs to be like, ah! Yeah, <laughs> Insert sound bite there, right? Um, last week when Kristen was here, we were talking a lot about just everything. But one of the big things that we kind of wrapped up our episode with was talking about 10 major principles of intuitive eating. And we had mentioned a couple times in our conversation last week, um, a phrase or something that you might've picked up on, which was called haze or health at every size. So before we kind of really get into our conversation today, um, Kristen, if you could just maybe explain to us a little bit to our listeners what haze is. Yes, absolutely. So haze or H-A-E-S uh, stands for health at every size. Um, and health at every size is a it's a healthcare philosophy that incorporates intuitive eating, which we talked about last week, um, and then seeks to help people improve their health and be empowered, but in a weight neutral way. And so that means meaning it doesn't matter if they lose weight, gain weight, or stay the same. Weight is not the focus. It is just um, purely kind of, um, you know, ways to kind of incorporate health. And so there are principles, there's five principles to health at every size. So number one is weight inclusivity. Um, And that's says to just accept and respect the inherent diversity of body shapes and sizes and reject the idealizing or pathologizing of specific weights, right? And so that is really just what we see in, you know, our culture that like there's people of different body sizes naturally, right? And, uh, you know, the idea that somebody can just be naturally thin, thin is so widely accepted, but the fact that somebody can't naturally be in a larger body, that is just unheard of. We reject that set like, and, you know, it goes both ways. So there is just so, I mean, we are a diverse uh, human race and there are so many different shapes, sizes within all of the races. And, um, you know, so the first uh, Hayes principle is to really respect that and to include that. Um, the second principle to health at every size is just health enhancement, right? So support health policies that improve and equalize access to information and services and personal practices that improve human well-being, including attention to individual physical, economic, social, 
spiritual, emotional, and other needs, right? So again, this is just supporting the idea that like, and as I said last week in episode seven, that yes, I don't like to downplay my own importance, but nutrition is just one piece of the, the, the pie of health. And so, um, you know, really we have to take into consideration, you know, economic, social, you know, socioeconomic, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, we, Hayes really seeks to include all of those things and consider all of those things in the support of health. Um, the third principle is to provide respectful care. So to really acknowledge our own biases and work to end weight discrimination, weight stigma, and weight bias. Um, to provide information and services from an understanding that socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and other identities, all of those impact weight stigma and support environments that address those equities. So this is getting a little political there at that point, but um, Exactly. So we need to break down these symptoms that contribute to weight discrimination, bias, um, and weight stigma. Um, number four, eating for well-being, right? I love that. Eat for well-being. What does that mean? That doesn't mean eat for your weight. That doesn't mean eat to be a certain weight. That doesn't mean eat to be considered this or that or the other thing. That just means eat for your well-being. Right, and that is so dynamic and so individualized, and I love that. But it says, you know, it means to promote physical, or excuse me, promote flexible individualized eating based on your hunger, satiety, your nutritional needs, and pleasure, rather than externally regulated eating um, or any externally regulated eating plan that's focused on weight control. Um, and then the last principle, number five, is just to support life-enhancing movement, or as we talked about last week, joyful movement. Um, and that is the support of physical activities that allow people of all sizes, abilities, and interests um, to engage in enjoyable movement to the degree that they choose, period. Um, you know, and so those are really kind of the principles of, of, of health at every size. And it, again, it really aligns with intuitive eating. Um, that they're meant to enhance health in a weight neutral way. And so um, they really kind of go well together. They, they really do go well together. <laughs> it's like they were meant to be together almost, right? Like they just complement each other so well. Absolutely. For sure. Um. You know, what's so interesting to me is number three, which is the provide respectful care. And I know that that was the one that kind of got a little political, but I think like that's a really big thing. I think that kind of can stem us into a weight stigma, um, all of that kind of stuff, um, specifically with um, when you go to a healthcare provider. Um, I can, I think the, the listeners might remember that we, um, Alicia and I kind of shared some rude comments in a previous episode that we had received from healthcare professionals or people in the healthcare industry, be it medical, be it, you know, personal trainers, things like that. And one of the things that has always stuck out for me is I was going through, obviously, all of this stuff. I was sent home with a pick line and this nurse asked me three different times if I was diabetic. And I was like, I'm not diabetic. And he kept saying, are you sure you've never been, you, you, you've never been told that you're pre-diabetic or diabetic. I'm like, I actually get checked for that every year as it's a, there's a family history of it. And I'm telling you that my A1C levels are fine. Like 
I am in a larger body. I'm also three times the size of my normal body because I'm fighting a septic infection. But no, you know, like this nurse in his wow. head by yep. no, like there was wow. nothing. And he had access to all my labs as well, which had every lipid test possible. So there wasn't like <laughs> of me possibly being like my glucose levels, any of those things, because all of that was tested a thousand times in the hospital. So that respectful care, I think, is important. And it's not even just about those kind of uh, socioeconomical, but that's a big thing as well. Like sometimes people who are in lower income um, areas of your city or of your community don't get that same respectable care, right? Like they get the bare minimum because of their um, inability to have access to healthcare, which can then cause so many um, underlying issues that if they just had access to true basic healthcare, that they wouldn't have those situations, right? But that's, again, my plug for universal healthcare, Medicaid for all, like whatever, <laughs> if you want to, but I've lived it. I've, you know, the $500,000 medical bills that would support the reason why I'm fighting for that. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, how you think uh, a general practitioner or a primary care physician could benefit from learning about both haze and intuitive eating principles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, I think it's important to really have an understanding initially on how um, people in larger bodies experience discrimination within the medical system, within healthcare. Um, you know, so it is not a surprise. It's not a secret. And, you know, studies have consistently shown that physicians associate, and I'm using air quotes here because I don't, I don't use these words. The word physicians associate obesity um, with such negative attributes, such as like non-adherence, hostility, poor hygiene, and dishonesty. And these types of attitudes are just pervasive. And it's really, it's not just in the United States either. It's it's across you know the world. Um, <clears throat> And these attitudes have been documented as far back as 1969, and they still continue to persist today. You know, in surveys done of primary care physicians, um, more than 50% view patients with obesity as um, awkward or unattractive or even ugly. They have less respect for patients that are of a larger body size. They also believe that um, people in larger bodies are less likely to follow medical advice or to benefit from counseling or adhere to medications. You know, and also that these attitudes, you know, they're saying may, but they do extend to other healthcare professionals, such as medical students, nurses, dietitians, right? Like, and so it is just pervasive. Um, you know, we also see that with patients who are in larger bodies, physicians, general practitioners, they engage in significantly <clears throat> less rapport building, especially emotionally, right? And for example, they're less likely to show empathy, concern, reassurance, um, partnership, or even self-disclosure. Um, and also some studies have looked at whether these biases affect how physicians interpret clinical symptoms or even make decisions, which is, it, it's amazing. But so providers will often say, you know, that they have technical difficulties performing exams or do not have the equipment to accommodate all patients, which 
boggles my mind because if we can send somebody into, if we can go visit Pluto, right, in outer space, we can't make stirrups that accommodate like a woman of a larger body. That's ridiculous to me. But, um, um, and so rather than seeing this as a potential or excuse me, a need that they need to fix, they just avoid performing these exams. Um, also, the suggested diagnostic plans really differ um, by patient's weight. Uh, with weight loss being more often suggested to people in larger bodies versus additional diagnos diagnostic testing for people in smaller bodies, right? So we see this like all the time where somebody goes in for knee pain and if that person is in a larger body, it is, well, maybe try, you know, losing x number percent of your body weight and see right versus a smaller body person going in for knee pain will get an mri they'll get x-rays done they'll get referred to you know whoever they need to it's just not it's not the same treatment um you know so how does this impact the patient right so not surprisingly um Avoiding or delaying medical care is very common in people in larger bodies. Um, you know, in surveys that have been done, <laughs> yeah, 55% of people in larger bodies have reporting have reported canceling an appointment because they're anxious about being weighed. They also reported delaying in like cancer screening tests or you know other sort of screening tests because of perceived barriers like. Not, not perceived, they are actual barriers such as disrespectful treatment or the embarrassment of being weighed or, or the worst one, unsolicited weight loss advice, you know? And so- That's a buzz right being, Yes, yeah. We're also, you know, we're seeing the disparities too in preventative services, you know? Like as a woman um, whose weight naturally increases over time, by the way, that's normal, everybody. You're not gonna be the same weight throughout your lifespan. So just know that that's normal. You know, women are less likely to, you know, get pap smears as they grow, you know, get older. Um, mammograms, colonoscopies, you know, and again, the larger the body, the larger the disparities, you know? And so that's, that's really, really um, just terrible. You know, I have, um, a, you know, not a personal example, but a client of mine, and she has, um, she has given me permission to share this story, but, you know, for a long time, so she lives in a larger body, she had incredible pain in her hip, you know, and she did exercise, she did the things, so it really wasn't getting any better, so she went to the doctors, and she was told, without an x-ray, without an MRI, or any other testing, that the pain must be because of her size, and that she should probably lose some weight. And then let's see how that goes. So mind you, this client, she was already at the height of her eating disorder, right? She was engaging in restriction, binging, purging, massive amounts of over-exercise, you know, and when she sought out help for her pain, uh, her eating disorder was simply reinforced by the dismissal of further testing um, because of that provider's like biased assumption of my client and her size, you know? So unfortunately she continued on her behaviors and over-exercise and with obviously no relief. Well, long story short, years later, she would find out that she actually had something called hip impingement syndrome, which requires surgery, right? And because of her um, misdiagnosis, to say the least, I wouldn't call it a misdiagnosis, right? 
they in the delay in treatment, she ended up needing, she has just had, is recovering from her third hip surgery. Third hip surgery. She is in her early 30s, oh. right? Um, you know, so, and also the same client of mine, again, permission to share the story. She had another point in her life, um, gone to her doctors to seek medication for her depression, right? And instead of being prescribed an appropriate medication, she was given Centromine for weight loss because the concern on the part of the physician was, as well, the antidepressants, there's always a risk of weight gain, and we don't want that because you're already in a lot, you know. And if you're already depressed about your weight, this would be a better option for you. Let's just help you lose the weight so that you can be better and not depressed anymore. Just insanity. You know, so, so <laughs> back to kind of answer your question, you know, how. Sorry, I just lost my place here. How would uh, you know a general practitioner or uh, you know a PCP benefit? I mean, it would benefit in so many ways, right? Like, first and foremost, we would appropriately diagnose not just eating disorders but any other condition. Um, instead of assuming that weight mm -hmm. is the problem, like a knee, you know, knee pain or other joint problems, infertility, um, other conditions of the reproductive system. System and again, eating disorders, right? Like, if we actually listen to the patient and believe what they're saying, you know, then again, these diagnoses would come without the delay and without the further like uh, harm that that caught that comes because of the refusal to diagnose. You know, and, and access to medical care would improve, right? People would be more likely to visit the doctors if they didn't fear they'd get a lecture on their weight when they go in for fucking strep throat. You know? Yeah. Yep. I mean. And, and again, I think just overall and in general, it would benefit um, in so many ways because it would reduce the harm caused by directly by weight stigma and fat phobia, dieting, dieting causes harm and weight cycling. And I'll just kind of like end by, you know, referencing this really interesting study. The study is called Perceived Weight Discrimination and 10-year risk of allostatic load among U.S. adults. Oh, I think we lost her. She frozen. I think she froze up. That's okay. I'm in, you know what's interesting, Alicia? I, the, the, the thought that she was, she had that client that, you know, went in for hip pain and they never did imaging, right? Like I worked in sports medicine. Like, how do you not do imaging? Yeah. How do you not do imaging? Like, I think that's a funny thing too. Um, so sorry. Oh, my no, bad. Nope. Yep. That's the that's Southern New Hampshire internet. Um, I don't know how much you heard, but I was talking about the study perceived weight discrimination and 10 year risk of allostatic load among us adults. Um, and anyways, what this study did was took a look at internalized weight stigma. Um, and it really found that, um, it, if somebody believes their weight is wrong or their weight is too big or too high, right? Over the long term, this causes actual physical, like measurable damage in the form of cardiovascular function, uh, lipid dysregulation, uh, glucose dysregulation, and inflammation, right? Like, so those are physical markers that we can 
we can test for, we can measure. And it's so funny because people in larger bodies, right? Like those chronic conditions, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all those things are, you know, are blamed on the body size. But it's so interesting because even just feeling like shit about your body, that creates inflammation and stress, right? Not to mention when people then act upon feeling like shit about their body and weight cycle as is inevitable if you diet, right? That in and of itself causes physical harm and damage. And so that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but I mean, it would, it, if general practitioners and, you know, PCPs, any pediatricians too, oh, don't even get me started, right? If, if they took a health at every size, weight inclusive, you know, body acceptance practice, I mean, the world would be changed. I'd be out of a job, which would be great, right? But yeah. No, there's 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 so many of us that have, have been, I don't use the term damaged, but maybe affected or inflicted for the last, you know, 30 years of our lives, right? Um, when, when we lost you for a second, Alicia and I were chatting real quick about your patient. And, I, you know, I worked in sports medicine for a long time. And um, we typically worked off mostly referrals from GPs or PCPs because, you know, the medical industry is so great that you have to have a referral for everything. And the insurance companies are set up so that they want you to do um, uh, conservative treatment before you actually even know what's wrong with you. So if you go in <laughs> pain or knee pain, they're going to tell you to do physical therapy before you even know. So you could have a, uh, you know, a hip impingement, you could have a labral tear of your hip, you could have a rotator cuff tear, and they want you to work through that um, with wow. conservative therapy before you've even been diagnosed that. So what we were saying is how crazy it is that that, that any physician wouldn't have ordered her imaging at that point. And it's interesting because I kind of received the opposite of that, where I had complained about my weight because I was working out so much and they kept saying, well, don't you have like knee pain or joint pain? I was like, no, like I, I can run seven miles and nothing hurts the next day. Like I might take an Epsom salt bath because I forgot to stretch, but like, I don't have joint pain. Like my body is carrying everything that it has really well. And like, the, again, that was like the, the assumption that the, the pain in my body or I should have felt pain because of the right. size of my body, right? Like, cause I remember, I remember when I was young, here's my tie to pediatricians and my doctor telling my mom, if she could just lose 30 pounds, it'd be like taking a 30 pound backpack off, right? Like imagine, imagine doing dance without that on, like, I'm sorry, what? Like, <laughs> you know. so just if, if a, a primary care doctor or a general practitioner, because everyone calls them different things, um, if they could just, this doesn't even seem like training that is anything else but being empathetic to all. Right, bodies. humane. It's the most humane way to treat people. Yep. Isn't that part of their Hippocratic oath though? Is like, do no, do no harm. Yep. Right. Like, and so if, you, if, if they knew the harm that they caused people when they suggested these quote unquote health plans or food plans or, you know, any of those things, um, I'm interested and I'm not sure if you wrote this down, Alicia, but you've used the term weight cycling a couple of times. And I don't know that our listeners will know what weight cycling is. Could you tell them a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So weight cycling is just kind of the... Um, medical term for yo-yo dieting or basically 
lose the weight, gain the weight, lose the weight, gain the weight, right? Which is in like, and that's the other thing too, right? We don't, we are told that, you know, weight loss or the, the achievement of weight loss is a simple math equation, right? Just calories in versus calories out, which ugh, is bullshit, right? Like it is not the truth. However, that is what we're told. And so when we engage in some kind of diet, right, to shrink our body, um, <laughs> the body is so dynamic and so amazing that it adapts and only the only thing it is trying to do is save you right and so when you restrict your food your body like we believe your body believes like oh my gosh there's no more crops we we don't have crops we can't eat so we must be in a famine it must be winter we need to save you so like let's shut off the reproductive system let's just conserve energy shut down the gi function we don't need hair skin and nails it's winter we've got to just save that person anyway it is a beautifully adapted, um, you know, survival mechanism that our bodies have the luxury of being able to engage in if needed. And so, you know, translate like your body being able to survive through famine and then, you know, re like nourish themselves during the feast times, right? Like our bodies, when we diet, think we're in a famine. And so it then, you know, and, and it's so interesting because it, Initially, when people diet, like their first diet, second diet, they can lose the weight sometimes um, pretty easily, right? The weight just seems to come off. But as they continue to diet, right, they, the body, they stop the diet, they gain the weight back, which, by the way, happens in 95 to 98% of people, 95 to 98% of people, when they stop the diet, or even, or even if they keep continuing, prolonging the diet, their body eventually is like, nope we can, we, this is a long famine. We've got to figure something else out. And so 98, 95 to 98% of diets fail and people regain the weight back. And, you know, a good portion of them, one to two thirds of people regain more weight back than they initially lost. And that is another protective um, survival mechanism for your body. And so that is just saying, like, we know another famine's coming. We've lived through this before. We're going to wise up. So we got to, like, put down some more reserves for the next impending famine that's going to come. Mm -hmm. Oh, we know it's going to come. Anyway, that whole process is called weight cycling. And that whole process, too, the process of weight cycling, as we were mentioning earlier, causes actual physical harm, as well as emotional, mental harm, right? Just right. So that's weight cycling. I mean, that's crazy to me too, because I've obviously in this last year have gone through a pretty severe weight cycle on, you know, un sure. unintentional. I mean, and you, one of the things that helped me so much because after my reversal surgery and my, my pipes started working again, I didn't have a front butt anymore. I instantly went back to the weight I was after uh, or prior to the reversal surgery. And I had lost, as many of you know, I went from, you know, I left the hospital being infected and completely inflamed at 229 pounds. In two weeks, I went to like 168 pounds. And that's when I reached out to you. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not eating. They starved me for 11 days. I have not, and you had explained to me very surely, like, all we have to do is work on you getting to eat hunger full cues. And then you need to realize that your body is going to reset itself when it starts working again. And that's not anything to be scared of. And you were the first person in my life to give me that permission and not be scared of it. And so when I did go from 
the hospital to like my two week post-op reversal. And I had started eating more regularly. Cause again, right before surgery, you are put and right. you can't have food cause they're working on your bowels. They don't want stuff flying out when they're doing stuff, you know? Um, so it's very interesting to have that and, and to see how, I mean, the, the body does, it just goes back, right? Like it goes yeah. no to save you. And, um, I, I, I've seen, and I've been that person and Alicia, you and I have talked about this too, about how, you know, we see that success, right? Like when we're actively trying to quote unquote, lose weight, because we're delving into our next cycle of a diet culture fad or, or phase in our life or season of our life. And we work really hard and we count the calories or the macros or whatever you're doing. And you've added this punishment workout routine. It's not joyful movement. It's <laughs> as you want, you know, because you have to do this. And then it's just not sustainable. Mm. Right? Like how and how like if 95 to 98%, which is pretty much 100%. Yeah. Fail. How mm -hmm. is the diet culture industry a billion dollar industry? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. Because they blame you. They make it you believe that that was your fault, your failure, you fucked up somehow and you need to try again. That's yeah. how they do it. They prey on your insecurities. Yeah. And fucking come back like little sheep do, do, do. Here I come. Yes, we do I mean it's so funny right when you think of like be, you can be like a lifelong member of, of Weight Watchers I'm yeah. sorry what why, why on earth when I need to be a lifelong like if I can if like we could just do it and lose the weight and then be done like why the fuck would I need to come back and any but yeah it's just it's like built right in it's a scam it's like a revolving well it always makes me laugh like I've, I've adapted this new thing when people are like oh I'm you know because they, they're not calling them diets anymore right like they're just not like it's a it's a lifestyle change or it's a wellness program right? it's a pro <laughs> plan and all I can think of is like yeah because you knew that anything with the word die in it was not something that people wanted to do <laughs> tea is silent friends you're going to die if you keep trying to do this <laughs> like diet we have seen and maybe even been that person who's like yeah so-and-so is on a diet right now or like I can't go out to happy hour with you all because I'm on a diet this week you know like we all know there's like such an ugly connotation about it yeah yeah I do have one quick question if I might um so um the whole doctor appointment thing really like got me going and I just want to hug whoever this client of yours was because oh. um I didn't necessarily receive it and get it in that capacity but my mother who is like the best person in my life has and mm. actually specifically about the knee so what I want to know is um so you have the client going to a doctor with let's just say knee pain because it's just a blatant like not weight related there is knee on a joint let's address it and the doctor goes to weight how do we go away from settling to what the doctor is saying in that appointment because um that's why i started my coaching business was i didn't want women to settle anymore for okay or for like manageable like i think we all deserve better and bigger than that yeah. Um, so what advice would you give somebody who is going into the doctor's appointment beforehand and maybe you're giving them a coach pep talk? Yes. If it comes up, 
like how do you advocate for yourself? What would be like maybe a key tip or something that you would give somebody in that instance where they're not asking for you to tell me you don't want to put me on on antidepressant because you think I'll get more weight gain because I'm not actually worried about that today. I'm worried about the fact I cry every day for no reason, you know, or like the pain in my knee. So what what would you how would you kind of coach the person to deal with that appointment? Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. And I, oh my, it's like my lifelong work to just like, empower, same thing, empower women. If anybody ever tells me, you know, my clients come back and they're like, guess what? They wanted to weigh me. And I told them no. And I'm like, yes, this is the most happiest day of my life. Right? Like, so it's so incredible, but it's really hard. And you, you know, I, you have to acknowledge too, that, you know, um, for many people, uh, challenging an authority figure, right, is is so difficult on so for so many levels, right? And for many, 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 many people, that is rooted in trauma, right? The idea that they have they can decline or deny or um, negate what a authority figure is saying, um, you know. And and again, many people view. <clears throat> the doctor or the provider as the authority, the expert, right? And you know nothing and I know everything. And um, just, I think one of you said it in one of your earlier episodes that like, you know, for me as a provider, we work for you. Like you, we work for you. You can interview us. Like we, if we are not serving your needs, you get to fire us, right? And so, but that confidence right? For somebody who maybe has experienced weight stigma, weight discrimination or abuse in not only within the medical system, but also other aspects of their life, it can be so terrifying and, and so difficult, right? To hold their ground in the first place. Um, you know, but one of the ways that I would suggest to people is, you know, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Reagan Chastain, but she is an amazingly wonderful and hilarious, um, but incredibly well-spoken member of the fat activist community. Um, and she put it really eloquently one time where she said, um, she went to the doctor for strep throat and she got a lecture about her weight. And so she has no problem speaking up and said, okay, well, so if I were a thin person, how would you treat my strep throat if I was a thin person? They said, well, well, we, we, you know, we do antibiotics. She's like, well, can we fucking start with that then? How would you treat me if I was in a thin body? Mm. Let's just start there because let's skip mm. all of the assumptions about my body and my weight. Can we, what would you do if I was in a thinner, if I was a thin person? And I thought that was just so incredibly sassy and amazing. And, and then the other thing too, I think some, one of you also might have mentioned it, Jess, like if they refuse to explore other options, ask them to document that in their medical chart. Yep. Right. Yep. You know, and again, I just think that that's one of the reasons why it, it is so important to be, um, you know, a weight inclusive um, practitioner because oh. then you wouldn't have any of these, you know, these issues, but you know, unfortunately people are still learning and people don't, you know, it may not even come from a place of, you know, um, anger or hatred. It just may come from a place where I, I, I simply didn't know right. for a period of time. Right. And I think back to the harm that I 
probably caused right in my weight loss advice because I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really, anyway, encounters like that also, um, really perpetuate and strengthen the, um, provider patient, uh, hierarchy and dynamic, which also leads to, you know, these, um, people feeling like they can't speak up or feeling like they can't challenge or question mm -hmm. what the authority figure is saying. And, um, you know, that is something that personally, I really make it my mission, one of my missions and my, one of my values to really break that down because, um, you know, if people are following my advice out of fear or just the belief that I must know everything and they know nothing, like, right. It gives them no autonomy and that's just not fair. Yeah, that's beautifully put because um, in my history, I wanted an answer and I wasn't allowed to be given an answer for so long. And I kept thinking, I kept internalizing what the doctor was saying as like, it just sucks to be you. Like you just, there's nothing wrong with you. Like stop, <sighs> you know, and like, it's not okay that like in a month's time I had 20 days of bleeding like no. consecutively for years, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, that's really beautiful advice. And I think too, like, I think we all need to find that one person that will help advocate for us when we need, when we are not strong enough yeah. like, and relaying that appointment afterwards. And, you know, Jessica would probably be the first person I'd call and she'd be like, that's not okay let's call the office manager right now and we're figuring this out because you're either not paying for that appointment or we're figuring a solution, you know, like, because like it invalidates what you're going through when yeah. you go through every day, you're living your life. So it's not like you're imagining things. So I think that's no. wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things, like, I feel like it is, it is, we, we put doctors on a pedestal sometimes or any provider, right? So therapist, anybody, because we go to them because we feel that they've had the education, but I've also worked for many a doctor be, managing their clinics, private practice, um, sports medicine, private practice dentistry. And one of the things that we've talked about before is the ability for a doctor to say, I don't know, but I'm going to help you. Right. And so- uh can be humble and realize their shortcomings. That's huge. But this training in health at every size and intuitive eating could really change healthcare providers' practices because they so often we look to them as the professionals, but they really only get X amount of training in certain things, right? Like, so sometimes people look to OBGYNs to be everything about the reproductive system and they can't. OBGYNs are a catch-all. They don't have a specialty, right? Like they don't specialize in a specific part, kind of like a general surgeon. A general surgeon knows how to fix things in an emergency and can put you back together when you've been ripped apart. But if you want someone to really care for your colon, you need a colorectal specialist or you right. Um, a person who is an endometriosis specialist who only operates and doesn't deliver babies and doesn't help with fertility and have all of these other quote unquote side hustles. Right. And so I think we do have to give a little bit of, um, forgiveness to doctors because I think we do put a lot of pressure on them to know everything, but if they aren't listening to us, which has been our biggest thing, they need to learn to hear us and they can't in good faith, treat their patient like a human, no matter what size they are, 
then that's not right. a provider that I or anybody that I know would want to have as a provider because we are so much more than our size right? And this is just a home for our, our soul to live in. And there's so many things that go into it. It's our genetics. It's the food that we have access to. It is right. how our body with all of the other things that are going on, processed food, like, you know, there's all of these different things. And that's crazy to me. Again, just referencing your poor patient that you had talked yeah. about, like just to have that kind of weight stigma on them. It's fat phobic, right? Mm -hmm. um, people are very scared of people who are in a larger body. I would consider myself what they call midsize, right? Because I don't feel that I'm thin enough to be considered a thin body, but I don't feel that my body is large enough to be considered plus size. And that's me looking at my clothing, clothing size in general, right? Like I'm in that 12, 14 range, um, us size. And that I struggle with that because I don't look like the people in the sh stores that I'm shopping in, but I want to have fashion like the people who are in the straight sizes. And so I'm like, Oh, I don't know where I fall. Um, that's a fashion thing. But like, that's the other thing too, is that it's, we're just such a rainbow of everything and our weight or our shell shouldn't be an indicator without any sort of physical, actual, diagnostic testing done to our bodies right like that's crazy like you don't get to tell me that yeah. my hurting because I'm fat if you've not tested my my knee and you don't get to tell me that I'm just bleeding for 21 days and that's just my body like right exactly. who bleed this long and are they told that it's normal right. right exactly and I think too you know one of the other things um, along with the, you know, one of the best things a provider can say to you is, I don't know, but I'm going to have you figure out. Um, I think, and also to add to that, one of the, um, another fantastic thing that a provider could do would be to hear um, the feedback that like, hey, what you said is not um, that actually is hurt, is hurtful. And that's actually exclusive, exclusive to me. You know, I mean, like, again, you know, we have to become very aware of our own internal biases. And even for myself, while I'm, you know, working on it and making sure and I'm, I do better now, now that I've had this experience, but I don't do it perfectly. And I've fucked up sometimes, you know, and, you know, so maybe something in my literature was not as weight inclusive as I thought it was, or my own initial thought process was not, you know, like, You know, early on in my practice, and I think, again, this is one of the best things a provider can do, you have to really ask and you catch yourself, like, and one of the things I ask myself is, would I be giving the same advice to somebody in a smaller body, right? And if the answer is no, you know, I need to check myself. And again, you know, for those that have felt like they are comfortable enough to come forward and say, you know, like, what I'm doing or saying feels exclusive, like, yes, that is totally uncomfortable for me right and thinking that like I may have harmed somebody without without you know not on purpose um and, and it's really hard to hear but it also allows me the opportunity for growth and for change and again change can only happen when you allow yourself to be vulnerable yep. and and you know I think if every provider was like oh hear what you're saying didn't even realize that that could be a possibility of something. Yeah. Like, I think that that, that would be. 
well, that happened to me because I had dealt with my surgeon who did my reconnection surgery way prior to my um, whole start of this. So I had seen her back in September of 2019 as I was referred to her to remove my gallbladder. And she sat me down and was like, your gallbladder is fine. She was just so brash. She's like, you're fine. I, you're, you probably just have some food sensitivities. Try fo the, fo the low FODMAP. It's not... <laughs> I want you to eliminate food and see if that's what's triggering you because all of your diagnostic testing, height of scan, this, 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 it's not your gallbladder. I'm not going to take an organ out of your body that is completely functioning, right? And then I like started crying and she's like, can you try this for six weeks for me? If when you start reintroducing these foods, it's not changing anything. And then that's when I was just like to her, you're not listening. I'm literally living off of vegetable broth and, and crackers and it still hurts, right? And so I left her office and I didn't see her again until she walked into my room after my emergency surgery. And I was like, oh shit, she's going to be taking care of me, right? And then after my last appointment with her, she like, sat me down and said, you have changed me as a doctor. Like I did not know how aggressive endometriosis could be on the colon. And if I present to me with all of these GI symptoms and there's not an inkling of what it is, this is what I'm going to think of before I tell them just change your diet you know what I mean like so that was a really good conversation to have with her and I didn't prompt it like she just had been with me for the last you know eight months of my life of everything that was going on but um you you mentioned the the how would you treat me in a thin body we have said it a couple of times the word thin privilege um so maybe we can talk about thin privilege and yeah. maybe little bit about how diet culture perpetuates like the stigma of disordered eating but only affecting people who are thin mm, yeah so thin privilege and what that is that is a, that's a fantastic question and so again I think I also think this is an important uh, time for me to acknowledge my own thin privilege and this is a conversation um, or acknowledgement that makes a lot of people incredibly uncomfortable um, but the thing to remember about privilege is that it isn't about us as individuals per se, it's about the systems that we live, all live within. Um, you know, and so to have thin privilege doesn't mean that you never disliked your body um, or you've struggled with your body image. It actually just means that by virtue of being below a certain size, you have greater access to resources and face less discrimination in society than people above a certain size. And acknowledging your own privilege um, is simply acknowledging which obstacles you have not had to face. You know, so for example, because I have been privileged, I have not had to experience, you know, judgment based on the contents of my grocery store cart, or I have not had to experience assumptions about my health based on my size. Mm. Um, I have not had to worry about, you know, going into a store and having them not make clothing in my size, or, um, you know, I've never worried that I won't be able to fit on my airplane seat, um, or that the host at a restaurant might try to sit me or seat me in a booth that I may not fit comfortably in, you know, and so on. So it's really just acknowledging what obstacles you have not faced faced um, or had to face, you know, in thin privilege, it's not anybody's fault, but it is everybody's responsibility, okay. you know? And so again, I think diet culture 
perpetuates the stigma of eating disorders only affecting people that aren't thin. And again, that's just another example of thin privilege, right? And, you know, it's interesting too, that the belief that weight, shape, and size is a choice. It's just a choice. You can just choose to be whatever weight, shape, or size you want. I think that's a big one as well, right? And Alicia, I see you laughing, but like, right, like that's, that's what we're taught, isn't it? And so it implies that people in larger bodies simply are not choosing to be thin. And that when they finally do decide to work on it, and again, I'm using air quotes here for all the listeners, um, that they couldn't possibly have an eating disorder because what they're doing is what they're supposed to be doing, right? Which is the pursuit of thinness and therefore health, right? They're just, they're just being healthy. And that, that couldn't possibly be an eating disorder, right? And again, this is bullshit, right? And it just further perpetuates the alarm and fear leading, this is another big one, to very quick and rapid diagnosis of eating disorders in thin bodies, right? But in larger bodies, you have the, well, that could be um, perception of eating disorders because if somebody in a larger body is saying, I exercise like two to three hours a day, and I, I don't want to go into any more detail, like further detail of behaviors um, because I don't want to be triggering to anybody, you know, but engaging in over-exercise restriction, you know, whatever, and you're in a larger body, you're praised. For doing it you are encouraged because well you know this is sound but at least you're losing weight so versus somebody in a thin body god the alarms would be sounding like no that can't happen like you're gonna hurt yourself it, you know it's just gross yeah yeah oh my goodness right i know like that, yeah just saying that i'm like oh well, I just, it, that made me think of, and this is going to be awful. I can't think of her name. Is it Jennifer something? She was in like Hunger Games mm -hmm. and they were talking about like, how did she prepare for some award show that night? And she was like talking about all of this food she ate. And it was like headline news. Like this, the celebrity ate all of this food before she had to put on this gown. And it was like, <laughs> Can you imagine, like, how lucky is she, you know? So it kind of works in both ways. But I remember, like, thinking, like, really? That's the headline? The headline is that she had a cheeseburger and fries before she went somewhere. Or maybe it was Kendall Jenner or something. But, like, before they went and did this, like, huge fashion thing, they were, like, eating all this food. And the societal thought of it is, like, no, you should have been starving yourself, you know? Well, that's what it is. It's just like when you, when people say, are you getting wedding ready? Like, oh, you, yeah. like oh, are you getting, you're going to look your best on your wedding day. And I have watched many of my friends, one of my closest friends who was in my wedding, like just so excessively distort, distort her eating to the point where I was like, you looked emaciated at your wedding. Like, that's not your size. Like, that's not your body type. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I think that's the hard part is we see ourselves through the thickest critic lenses, right? Like 
we hate every picture that someone else takes of us, but they're taking that picture in that moment because they think you look beautiful. And we have to remember that, right? Like they're taking it through their lens and they're saying you look beautiful in this moment, but we want to think of like the perfect angle for how we're seeing things. And it's not the same lens. Like it's just not, you know, like there are some beautiful pictures from my wedding that I critique every little piece of my body. And then I go, but everyone, like, not one person looked at me and went, you know what, you could have been thinner in your dress. Mm. They said to me over and over again, how beautiful I looked and all my bridesmaids looked and the whole everything was. Like, no one said one critique about anything. So why look at these beautiful memories and do that, right? Like, why do women have to worry about fitting into a dress? Why aren't we making a dress that fits our body? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, I am knee deep in rain, which is a, is a series on Netflix that was like on a different station, but it's all about Mary queen of Scots. A it's very historically inaccurate because the women back then were not like thin. They were rather big because when you were in a larger body back then, it meant that you had money, which meant that you had grain, which meant that you had a big dowry. So their waists were not very little. Right? <laughs> I love it. And then, Get your shit together. Mary right. They had custom dresses made to them mm -hmm. and we're going to the stores and we're asking people to give us a size that's going to fit 75 other women. And it's, it's not going to, because guess what? I'm a little bit bigger here, but a little bit smaller here. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's yeah. craziness. So you know what, Jennifer Lawrence, eat your freaking cheeseburger and look good in your dress too. That's right. Because it's only going to make you sweat. So. <laughs> it makes me think about the anxiety that's surrounding diets and body images too, you know, like, um, even just going to the store, for example, I don't really think too much about it, except when I'm with somebody of smaller sizes than me, or maybe somebody new that I'm dating with, because for me, I go towards the back side of the rack because it goes from small to big. And they go towards the fun. And that's if the, it carries my size. And I just think that there's, um, I just think that there's this um, stigma that we've created about even where you shop at the store, where you pick up, product, you know, like, it's not just, and the weird thing is we all want to look great for the world, in my opinion, at least. I think we all want to look great because we all want to look back and be like, look at that. Like that, I look good there. Like I feel good, I look good. But everyone's perspective, and this always trips me out, everyone's perspective about everybody is not the same. So my perspective on Jessica doesn't match yours, Kristen, because I have a completely different relationship than her. Mm. I've done things with her, I've had different conversations. Yeah. I view things differently than you view things. And we're so caught up in this like mentality. And I think I'm going off on a tangent, so I apologize. Wow. We're so caught up in being accepted by everyone and being the chosen, the chosen person or the chosen like concept that we, we miss the point that like the only true perspective that matters is how we look at ourselves. You know, oh, so true thing that Jessica needs to worry about is at the end of the day, she's happy with herself or she, you know what? I did good. Yeah. Today. I'm happy today. Or 
you know what, today was hard, but I'm so grateful for X, Y, Z, you know, and we like missed that. And I don't even know why I went off on this tangent. <laughs> Clearly I just needed to share it. Needed. But I just think that, you know, like we also need to remember that, you know, in this culture of weight cycling and fat phobia and this person's better than this person just because of their image. Mm -hmm. um, again, everyone's perspective is so different. Like we don't, I mean, they always say you don't know where somebody's been and you don't know what somebody's battling. Yeah. No, what you don't, you just don't know anything about anyone truly because your perspective is so different from everybody else's perspective. So true. Have you guys, um, this was something I saw on the talk, the TikTok, but um, <laughs> the talk. <laughs> Rio Day, she was part of like Danity Kane. Like she was in like the making the band with P Diddy and everything. And she was like dating Polly D for a while. This is my pop culture shining through. So Love there was these, a lot of people were posting these pictures of her. One set of images being that paparazzi took on Labor Day where she's like in a pool and she's just looking very natural and she is in a larger body and her hair is undone and there's no filter and there's no makeup, no glam squad. And then she like was trying to dispute those pictures that were taken and saying like, that's not me. I've, you know, I've lost this weight. And people are saying like, fess up girl, you're using an editing app. Like try not to get money from flat tummy tea. You should be getting money from the editing app because the editing app is making you look so good. And like, I have a problem with this because in one way people are trying to say like, be yourself, you know, like, so what the paparazzi got you in the pool, but she's still being held to these like un like achievable standards, like let her live her life. Like why is the pop, why do paparazzi get paid money for pictures that make them look poor, right? Mm -hmm. that, that show people in a less than perfect light, like, because people still want to see those pictures. Right. And then we've got Instagram, which is put a filter on this and blur this out so that you only see this. And we have to remember that. And people who are struggling with disordered eating and weight cycling and um, thin privilege and fat phobia and all of these kind of things, we're getting it on every single level, right? Like we yeah. get it. every, everything is in our body. There's not been one time where I haven't judged some, I've judged people and been like, should they really be wearing that? Like, is it my place to say that? Who gives a shit if the girl at the pool wants to wear the bikini and it's not the bikini that I would wear in that body, but that's not my body, right? Like, so I'm trying to, in one way, empower other people to like love their body and blah, blah, blah. But then I'm, sub like like subconsciously judging someone else because that's just how everything has been and I feel like if more people could understand that like this quest for this perfect size just doesn't exist like and it shouldn't take and we've talked about this so many times like death disease divorce any of these things yeah. to make us feel happy for what we do have because until we can really truly be happy with what we have like we're not going to live life. Like we're still going to be like preoccupied with what's on our plate. What's not on our plate. What's in our yeah. shop. What's not in our shopping cart. And yeah. I grew up in a, in a place where the, the little Debbie's cost one ninety nine, but five apples cost seven ninety nine, And my mom could only buy the little Debbie's right. Like, and I like the little Debbie's because it tastes good, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, just all such interesting. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things I think that we, we've kind of touched on too is like how treatment approaches are different for people in thin bodies and larger bodies. We don't really need to go too much further into that. But one of the things I think we talked about before too is like, 
there's things that trigger us, like when we think of diet culture, but like, if you could give our listeners like the top three things that they could maybe work on eliminating or work on not focusing on, um, to help them kind of move away from being trapped in this cycle of the diet culture vultures, what could you give them three things you would do for that? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think first of all, the, the first one would be the fact that thin bodies are more, are the most desirable, valuable, and healthy, right? Like the thin bodies are the most desirable, valuable, and healthy. That is one big diet culture vulture that I want us to all be able to move away from, because as we've talked about at length in this podcast, thin does not equal healthy. And it certainly does not, we are taught that it equals desirable value but again that is the that's what's hurting people so that's the first one second also that you know eating a certain way is good or bad and that a person's worth increases when they're eating good or healthy and again i'm using air quotes here right so that like this moralistic like um attachment to food that we, you know, subscribe to, or that is so pervasive in our culture, you know, it just breeds guilt and shame and feelings of failure, right? When you eat the bad food or whatever, um, right. you know, so those are the first two. And then third, we just need to get rid of the fucking BMI scale. That shit is worthless, worthless. And that's why I take like a hot minute and just to give a little bit of background here. Mm -hmm. And Jess, you were talking about the BMI scale earlier. And I think it's just really important to give our listeners um, a little bit of like, just kind of quick BMI 101. So the BMI scale, <laughs> it was invented by a Belgian mathematician and astronomer. So I think it's really important. You're a smart guy, but he's not a health professional by any means right? And it was invented to measure the average sizes of populations. And even he said that it was not intended to be used to measure individual health, right? So not intended for individual use, was meant to measure the sizes of average size of populations. That's it. Also, uh, uh, interesting to know that it was created um, <laughs> using white men of European descent as its standard, right? Like, so just let that sink in. We have more races than just white European people, right? Like, so not only is the BMI scale um, or applying the BMI scale to anyone outside of the white race racist, it's completely and unapologetic, unapologetically discounting the various sizes and shapes of people across races right? It's a complete and utterly bullshit measure of somebody's health. And the only reason it's part of our medical system today is because health and life insurance companies began using it around the turn of the 20th century to categorize people into normal weight, quote unquote, underweight, quote unquote, overweight, and quote unquote, obese, right? And so that they could connect it to health or lack thereof and turn a higher profit. And they did this by influencing doctors and physicians using data and literature that they created, that they created in attempt to illustrate the supposed risks of higher weight. And because money was at stake 
And for centuries before, the culture had already be sh been shifting in an anti-fat direction. It was fairly easy for the theory that higher weights caused worse health outcomes to take root in the medical community. And here we are today. Right, and that is kind of, I can't take credit for that whole rant because uh, the majority of all of those facts came out of Christy Harrison's book, Anti-Diet. And so I just wanna like put that plug in here as well. But again, you know, third and foremost, <laughs> we could just get rid of the BMI scale. And I don't use it in my practice either. It's not something that I use ever. It's not even on my charting, useless. One of the interesting things that I remember reading in her book too was that when the the medical and insurance industries did start to um, adhere to this BMI scale as a measurement of health, the people who were pushing for it also had their hands or had um, money from their in their pockets from people who were developing the first approved F or FDA approved um, diet pill. So. Yep people who are wanting to use a math mathematical equation where they when they weren't getting the answers they wanted they changed the equation not the the data because you can't change the data they changed the equation to get what they wanted out of that equation or the factors into it and then because they wanted people to lose weight and use this new FDA approved drug that they were going to profit from and have money put in their pockets they were really pushing for this scale um, to be a marker of health, even though the creator said it wasn't for that. The other thing that I find interesting as well is that when they added another tier, which is that cult, that term morbid obesity, mm -hmm. which we talked about this back in episode six, the O word um, uh, episode that we had, is that they wanted um, a reason to make um, medical procedures for um, bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery approved by insurance. So they had to tie in a person's weight or higher weight or larger yeah. body to creating a situation where they could die if they didn't have the surgery, even though these surgeries are uh, included in that 95 to 98% failure rate. So, um, and we will have you back on, we're going to go seriously deep into this because this is a huge thing. Yes. Um, and you know, like that, when you categorize someone by taking their height and their weight and adding, you know, like something in into it to make it a certain way, you, they, they have no physical way of saying like this weight came from muscle mass, this weight came from overall body fat or um, bone density or water retention. Um, for instance, like I said, when I left the hospital after my surgery, I was 229 pounds. It was not 229 yes. fat or muscle on my body. I was inflamed and infected and full. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's craziness. Like, that is just... Absolutely. And so that's, again, another plug for telling your physician that you do not need to be weighed unless they're going to give you anesthesia at that appointment. Because yeah. they do need to know your weight for that because that's kind of like how they're like, okay, how much do we need to make her sleep and be comfortable and be pain-free? Yeah. Or if they're going to be giving you medication. But most medication is not prescribed based on your weight correct. right like correct it's wholeheartedly and to you know kind of circling back to alicia when you had said like what would be something that you could say you know or women could people could say excuse me um in the doctor's office right like another piece is that if you are of any other ethnicity or race besides white northern european you can also say like if any of that applying that equation to me as, you know, um, a black person or as somebody who, you know, any other like nationality or race, 
does not apply. You're trying to tell me that I should be the same size as a white person when I'm not white, you know? And so, yeah. Oh my God. So true. So, you know, we, we've got these three tips for them, things that they should be working on cutting out. But one of the biggest things that we've, we've known, or I'm learning, I can't say no. And I know you're learning through your practice, helping your patients. And Lisa, you're learning it as well, is that dis disordered eating is kind of something that we're going to be recovering from for a long time. And so some people might ask you in when they come to see or have you be a patient of yours, Kristen, is how long, like, is there an estimated length um, to recovering from this? And what are the long-term effects of disordered eating? Because obviously the effects are also going to influence the recovery, right? Yeah, wholeheartedly. It's a really great question. So regarding the estimated length um, for recovery from disordered eating, the short, least complicated answer is, and it's probably the most frustrating, is that everybody's journey and duration is completely different, right? Recovery is not a linear process, and there are so many things that need to happen to be put into place before full recovery is possible. And, you know, I'll just kind of like talk a little bit about each of those things, but so the first thing that needs to happen is medical stabilization, right? And, you know, somebody with an eating disorder um, or disordered eating may or may not be starting where they need to be medically stabilized. They may start somewhere within, you know, kind of this realm. Um, but, you know, first and foremost, is somebody needs to be medically stabilized. So this means regulating and stabilizing things like um, your vitals, blood pressure, heart rate, that kind of thing, your blood work, and stabilizing you just to the point where you are out of imminent danger of having a medical emergency. So that has to be established if need be, if it applies. Um, and then the next biggest, you know, one of the biggest things, um, process or parts of this process is what I call nutritional rehabilitation, right? And this is the next step. And it's really important to understand that this can look different for everybody. So while this can include things like weight restoration, though, again, important to acknowledge that not everybody will need weight restoration. And that not needing weight restoration does not mean that somebody is not very sick, right? Mm -hmm. So nutritional rehabilitation can include weight restoration. Um, it also includes, um, you know, just decreasing your overall preoccupation with food, um, which comes as a, a high preoccupation with food comes as a result of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. um, it means, you know, normalizing your sleep patterns and your metabolism, as well as your digestion, reconnecting your hunger and your fullness cues, improving memory and focus, being able to regulate your body temperature on your own, um, resuming a normal menstrual cycle, if that is something that has been impacted, um, resuming appropriate hair, skin, and nail growth, as well as learning to reconnect socially with friends or loved ones right? This whole idea of, well, I can't go out to eat because I'm on a diet or because I can't eat that or I didn't run enough today or whatever it is, right? So that includes the nutritional rehabilitation part. And then there is the psychological work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for many, you know, there's interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT or dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, um, there's motivational interviewing. Those are all great skills that can help reduce eating disorder thoughts and urges, as well as um, increase cognitive awareness in the moment when they are happening. Um, but this deeper work 
can only occur once somebody is medically stabilized and as the nutritional rehab process is progressing, right? Because a starved brain, you're not going to be able to have access to the therapy where you have, you know, you do psychological work and grow because a starved brain is just not going to be able to retain the information as adequately and appropriately as, you know, a nourished brain. You know, and again, so during the psychological work too, clients are going to then begin understanding and addressing this is more of the long-term work, <laughs> the root cause, as well as the function of their eating disorder in the first place, right? All eating disorders serve a function. Um, there, and the eating disorder is a coping strategy. It's a maladaptive coping strategy, but it is a coping strategy. It at some point was developed out of our body to um, keep you safe from something, to protect you from something, to serve, to fill a need, to fill a void. And so we have to understand what that was um, in order for you, because you do, you need to get your needs met moving forward. We just need to identify what need your eating disorder was serving and needing so that we can move through that. And so that whole process, uh, you know, it can take years. It can take a year, it can take 20 years. It really just depends on the person and how pervasive their eating disorder is, how significant, uh, I don't mean significant because that's, um, that's invalidating, just how, what their trauma is, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And so it can take a while, but on if all of those things need to happen, but it's so, so, so important to be doing that work because, you know, to answer the second part of your question, what are the lifelong um, effects of disordered eating? So, you know, it's common knowledge that eating disorders can cause a multitude of medical complications, you know, like loss of your period, um, you know, like difficulty regulating your own body temperature, all these things, right, we had talked about. Um, but your question about love, the long-term effects is a, actually a really important question um, and point to understand. So most of the acute complications of the eating disorder do revolve um, once full weight restoration and or nutritional rehabilitation has taken place. Right? But there are others that can last throughout the entire lifetime, depending on the individual and the severity of their eating disorder. So there is um, some impacts to the GI system, right? So eating disorders almost always, almost 100% of the time, come with some acute form of GI disturbance, whether that's frequent nausea, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, early fullness, delayed gastric emptying, and so on. Um, but typically, as I said, these symptoms resolve with ongoing nutritional rehabilitation. However, in a small percentage of the population, these GI symptoms actually persist and become chronic conditions um, to be managed lifelong. Um, and that can be really difficult. Um, another system that's impacted, can be impacted long-term, is our bones, right? I mean, so bone loss is common in women with eating disorders and it occurs when a woman's period stops because of low body weight. Um, you know, so no, that's called amenorrhea, um, which is a condition that creates um, low uh, estrogen levels, which contributes to significant losses in bone density. Um, also, malnourished women produce um, excessive amounts of the adrenal hormone 
cortisol, just you were mentioning that earlier, which is also known to trigger bone loss. And so, and this can also affect men um, with eating disorders as well, or people identify as male that, so as they lose bone density due to low weight um, from either restriction or, um, and or testosterone deficiency. So long and the short of it, low, low bone mass or osteopenia is common with the people in eating disorders and it starts in the early stages of the disease and this can lead to stress fractures and possibly osteoporosis. Um, but it's a greater, it's a problem that's greater in older adults, especially women whose bones are already thinning with age and menopause, which reduces um, estrogen levels. So ultimately and unfortunately, if your eating disorder occurred um, when you were very young, it's still a likely possibility that you may experience um, effects on your bones throughout your lifetime. Yeah. Um, there's also, impacts to the heart that can be done. So acutely, food restriction and purging will dehydrate the body, uh, which throws off electrolyte le levels um, and can lead to decreased muscle function. And the heart is a muscle, so, you know, includes the heart as well. Um, and if it's not functioning well for an extended period of time, the result can be heart disease, heart arrhythmia, which is irregular heartbeats, um, cardiomyopathy, which is a weakening heart, um, muscle weakness that can border on uh, paralysis and tetany, which is involuntary medical excuse me, muscle contractions. So all and all of these side effects can be fatal, especially when the conditions are prolonged um, and chronic. And then, oops, lastly, or actually not lastly, but so it can affect the reproductive system too. So acutely, if somebody loses their period um, or, you know, their reproductive system becomes impacted because of the restriction, um, that impacts a woman's ability to get pregnant. And so, you know, also too, if women have a history of anorexia and they do get pregnant, there is a higher risk of miscarriage or low um, infant birth. And so that doesn't necessarily directly affect an older adult who is, um, you know, considered have a chronic issue. But if you've always wanted children and you were unable to conceive, right, in your reproductive years, that would absolutely pose a risk. Um, you know, and then again, kind of just overall, like emotional, <laughs> long-term effects of an eating disorder, right? If you are consistently, you know, pursuing weight loss or believing that your body is wrong and incorrect, that, as we were saying earlier, with regards to that study on the, you know, allostatic load on your body, um, that causes actual physical, you know, um, symptoms as well, as a, and also emotional and mental. So, I mean, the, ugh, the symptoms and, you know, the, the damage that it can cause over the lifetime is, is, is so significant and really so, so important to address this, you know, early, um, as early on as possible. I mean, that's just so crazy. Like, I, right. To it, and I don't want people and listeners don't think that she's only listing these things if you have been clinically diagnosed with an eating mm -hmm. disorder. This is a cross Great point. If you have experienced any sort of disordered eating, which again, remember, disordered eating means like a preoccupation with food or consumption of food or lack of thereof to obtain a certain weight, like you have to remember that I would say pretty much, I would even gamble to say 90 to 98% of. of the population has participated in some sort of disordered eating. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I see it, I'm seeing it every day, especially, you know, people are shaming people for quote unquote 
gaining the COVID-15. Guess what? We are in a global pandemic. If that is the worst thing that happened to you during this time, like you need to be thankful that you had food in your belly this whole time because there are people who didn't, you know what I mean? Like, but this is, if the, if you heard all of this, if you heard all of this information before you decided to sign up for your next quote unquote health challenge or your next quote unquote, I'm going to join this and we're going to go to meetings or I'm going to be your accountability coach or your accountability partner for working out. Like if someone listed all of these things as a quote unquote side effect, would you still sign up for it? Mm-hmm. Like if this was going to damage you so severely, cause I, I believe me, if and I had a 95 to 98% failure rate, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this might work. Two percent chance. Two percent chance this could work in your favor. Two percent when you put it that way. Two percent chance it could work, but like ninety-eight percent chance that you're gonna end up with mental issues, heart issues, some bone loss, maybe (laughs) like for the rest of your life. Yep. Yeah. Like, think about it. Like, I listen to those commercials, right? It's like, are you sad? Do you sometimes feel this? Take this pill, but it could cause anal bleeding, heart attack. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, no, I'm not going to take that. I'll be sad sometimes. It's okay. (laughs) You know, like, exactly. In America, we're all a little sad sometimes. We all feel lonely sometimes. Like, it all, it all happens, you know. And we all don't love our. Exactly. Our body every single day of the, you know, the year either. And that's okay. Right. And our body's still, even though you don't love it, or maybe you have a bad body day, like that's okay. Right. Your body is still deserving of respect and basic human needs. Mm. But that's the thing too, though, guys, like as, as we wrap up this episode, like just think about it. Like we are in the grips of a diet culture vulture, right? Like they're just holding on to us. They're the ones that are making us hate our bodies. Like if we didn't have these outside influences yeah. and think about it, we look at a baby and we go, Oh, look at little chubby legs. Like I want someone to pinch my chubby legs and be like, look at your chubby legs. They're so cute. You know what I mean? Like, why do we, why do we accept it in certain times, but not accept it in other times, right? Like that is um, a societal influence that is that is um, the fashion industry's hold on us, right? And people are trying, they are trying. Look at, what's his name there from uh, Runway? Oh, his name's Christian something. He's a little gay man, I love him. But he like, designs, yes, yes. yes. He, what's his love- name again? again? Christian Suriano. Yes, love him, right? He's like, all, women are all shapes. Like, I, I want every shape wearing my clothes. New York City runway, <laughs> not just in the stores. On exactly. In New York City Fashion Week. Not, yes. like, yeah. not like list D, you know, like his main show includes all colors, all sizes. Nice. Oh, I love it. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. And yeah. this been there's just been so much information you guys and we have lots of little um different authors different podcasts that we've mentioned and this is just the beginning of a wonderful uh conversation that we're going to have with Kristen. she's going to be back on with us many more times um so please if you have questions for her you can reach out to us and you can also reach out to her but just thank you so much for joining us for this two-part series this episode did get a little bit longer than our usual ones but that's that's a little bonus for you we stole a little bit more since times no don't do not apologize this has been amazing and <laughs> an hour ahead of us because you are on the east coast and we are central time so we are <laughs> on a sunday um i just thank you guys again for joining us don't forget to tune in for our next episode
episode, which will be episode nine. Can't believe it. What? Nine episodes. Loving your body through the unwell. That's going to be our conversation next time. Thank you, Kristen, for joining us. Um, please tell people where they can find you. Yes, thank you. Thank you, absolutely. Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Monadnock Nutrition Services, on Facebook at Monadnock Nutrition Services. Um, my website is monadnocknutritionservices.com. Um, and my email is hello at Monadnock Nutrition Services. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. And we will um, link that in the show notes for you so everyone will be able to find that. And on our Instagram post, we will link that for you as well. Please join the conversation with us. Um, don't forget to give us a, a review. Five stars is always appreciated. There is a video on our Instagram page how to do that if you are unsure. But please, if you feel like joining the conversation with us, give us an email. We want to hear from you. Conversations with A and J at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. You can also find us on our social medias, which is Instagram and Facebook, Conversations with A and J, all lowercase, all one word. And if you're interested in any of my coaching services, please contact me at the purple dash on Instagram or Alicia at the purple dash.com. Thanks everybody. Yay. Thank you. Thank you.